Hello, everybody. It's me, your old ghoul friend, Peaches Christ. And I'm here to host another rousing episode of the Midnight Mass podcast. But first, before I can go any further, I'm going to introduce my fantastic co-host, the fabulous filmmaker and creative collaborator of mine. He was once voted in the high school yearbook most likely to grow up, become obsessed with horror movies, and host a podcast with Peaches Christ. It's none other than Michael Verratti. Hi, Peaches. You know, it is true that my yearbook had strangely specific categories. <laughs> Your yearbook editor was a psychic. It's true. It's true. It was Madame Cleo. Remember her? <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to make a, a sort of a... An, a an opportunity for us to segue into today's fantastic and exciting subject. You know, we're, we have a, a new movie to discuss, and I know you you are ready to let the world know. It's true. I just like, you know, if I can throw a wrench in something, I absolutely did. We are not here today to discuss famed infomercial queen Madame Cleo, but in fact... Call me now! <laughs> In, in fact, <laughs> Peaches and I have chopped up a big chocolate cake and are trying our best to avoid a day in the chokey because that's right, we are celebrating 1996's Danny DeVito-directed Matilda. Yes, Matilda, which I am so excited about because, uh, as I've discussed uh, many times over the years, there are these films that people grow up watching over and over and over again. And and really, that's what makes them become a cult movie, is sort of this love of a film that you have where you rewatch it, but you don't necessarily get to connect with your tribe, the fellow people who also love this film, until later, you know, when you realize that other people had a similar experience. And I can't say that I had that experience with Matilda. You know, for me, those films were things like The Goonies or Poltergeist or, you know, I mean, Let's face it, I'm a child of the 80s. So they're, they're more the 80s films. But I was introduced to this film by Jinx Monsoon and Major Scales, Bindula Krim and Trixie Mattel and Provincetown because for them, this was um, a cult movie that they all loved and they grew up watching over and over again. And I remember kind of rolling my eyes like when they wanted to show it to me, like, okay, isn't that some kitty movie? Um, and I hadn't actually realized that it was directed by Danny DeVito, which definitely um, excited me. And then we sat down and watched it, and I was completely blown away. Like, I actually feel like it's such a good movie. You cannot dismiss it as just some kiddie movie. It's just so transgressive and dark and wonderful and magical, and I totally get why kids, you know, a certain kind of kid was obsessed with it growing up. Well, I definitely think that a huge part of that does, you know, owe itself to Danny DeVito being the filmmaker behind this. And one of the things we talk about with both of our guests is Danny DeVito as sort of a cult filmmaker of his own. But what I also think is important about the trajectory of Matilda that you spoke to is kind of the genesis of cult films because on the show we talk a lot about cult films that are sort of born out of that midnight movie audience or finding your tribe or the video store rental experience. But there are also the imprinted cult films of our youth. These movies that you see at an impressionable age that do speak to an otherness that are a little bit different than the mainstream movies that are made for kids or younger viewers that we recognize the weirdness of it and are 
pulled towards. And I think The Goonies, of course, was a big budget movie, but has lasted as a cult film because there's a subversive nature to it. Something like Matilda, something like Hocus Pocus, which wasn't really a box office success, but the kids who saw it when they did embraced it and it became a cult film because of it. Even Casper, I think, is an example of that. I know a lot of adult fans of the movie Casper now that weren't necessarily rocking it out largely then. And it's because they grew with it and they they had this uh, ability to embrace it. And what I love about our show that's dedicated to cult films is by doing a movie like this, we get to peel back the onion and talk about how different cult films find their cults. And this movie is a cult film thanks to the discovery of children, which because of the content of Matilda, how else would it have been discovered, right? I agree. And I think, of course, the source material comes from a person who is no stranger to creating cult content. So, you know, Matilda is a story by Roald Dahl, you know, who's created other stories that, you know, have led to the the creation of cult movies, right? So obviously we, well, I'm going to assume that we love the witches. I right. mean, who doesn't love Angelica Houston in The Witches? You know, such a great movie. Well, and the great thing about Roald Dahl is he is sort of a gateway horror author. You know, when you mm. look at something like The Witches, The Witches obviously has horror content and there are stakes. The children who are afflicted by the witches in the story, it does not end well for all of them, which is not true of all children's literature, of course. Matilda follows a similar trajectory to Carrie. You know, she is othered by an oppressive family and doesn't fit in at school. And because she is so ostracized, she looks inward and finds this power within herself. And that's how Matilda kind of rises up and becomes who she is. Of course, in Carrie, it takes a dark turn, whereas the messaging in Matilda is a lot more positive. But even something like uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory follows sort of the beats of a slasher movie when you think about it. Willy Wonka, this strange other, picks off the children one by one until the virtuous kid remains, basically. And I think what's really cool about Roald Dahl is because he injected adult themes into his work, as strange as it was and as challenging as it was, I think children were drawn to it because you you know what it was to be a kid and to have material that talked down to you. And this material not only didn't talk down to people, it like understood that children like weirdness and appreciate something that's a little bit off the beaten path. So if you were a kid predisposed to the weird, like Peaches and I were, uh, of course this would speak to you. I think of this as a gateway horror film. Um, I think that if you grew up with Matilda, of course you're eventually going to look for other stuff that has a little bit of a darker thread. I mean, maybe that's just me hoping and wishing and dreaming, but it seems like all the people that I know who like this movie also have a little bit of a uh, taste for the dark. Absolutely. I mean, I I think that that is completely hitting the nail on its head. And I think the other thing that we will hit upon as we go further into these conversations with both of our guests is that the marriage of the darkness of Roald Dahl, who could also be problematic, with uh, a filmmaker as wonderful and sweet, but also sick and twisted as Danny DeVito. And you look at Danny DeVito's other films, they are dark and they are funny and they are unapologetically edgy in a way that just feels like it's not even trying to be. You know, he's just naturally twisted. And so it's like this perfect marriage for a kid's film. And the other thing that you said that I really, really like that I think a lot of people uh, forget is like we often as movie fans 
uh, become movie fans when we're children. Right. You know, most people I know who really love movies started loving movies when they were kids. And kids know the difference between good writing and bad writing. And the truth is in the pudding. Like, you know, poorly written roles for children don't succeed. And it's why I think something like the phenomenon that was E.T., why E.T. struck the way that it did was because it was unapologetically about kids who were smart and they talked like kids and they were clever and they were fearful of the man. They already knew at that young age to fear adults and their motives. And I think that this film has a lot of that subtext to it. You know, obviously, you know, not all adults. We get Miss Honey in this movie, who's sort of a savior. Um, but that theme, when when well-written, it strikes a chord with children. And the same theme delivered poorly. Like, I see so many movies now, so many TV shows where the, the, the kids are so poorly written. And they fail. They totally fail. I think it's why Stranger Things succeeded. Because the kids were so well-written. If you watch that show, those kids, their characters are so well-developed. Their dialogue is great. And, you know, the writers respected the kids. But that's not always the case. We've all seen films that center around kids that alternatively have parents who are dumb. Like, you know, you've seen these kid movies where the ch the parents are just sort of out to lunch and totally ignorant of what their children are doing. And I think that a movie like Matilda gives agency to everybody, but also doesn't make excuses for everybody. You know, we know that Danny DeVito and Rhea Perlman's characters as Matilda's parents are not good people, and they're ignorant of her activities, but not because they're stupid, which a lot of parents in children's movies are portrayed as. They just don't care, and therein lies the more heinous truth of the reality of people. So it's laying the truth of, of, of adults and how sometimes adults are not always good at the feet of children without having to be pedantic or strange or sugarcoat it. And it also shows that powerlessness that she feels that a lot of kids' movies try to take away. Like, this is a movie about a kid, so the kids are going to be the ones that do all the work and the, the parents are going to be dumb, or vice versa. Children aren't handled well and the adults are a little too overbearing. I think this film strikes a delicate balance because it recognizes that we all make choices in our life, and sometimes those choices are not good for other people, and our choices affect other people. And this is a movie where the parents' choices very negatively affect their daughter, and they don't care. And that's heavy, for a children's yeah. film. And the way it's presented is just so matter of fact, you know, yeah. like the, the, he doesn't he doesn't dance around it at all. And of course, uh if, if you're familiar with the film, it's also himself in the movie. Danny DeVito plays one of those, you know, um shitty parents and uh and then he's also the narrator as a different voice as a different character. Um and we're going to talk about that. And you know, I think it's really exciting we have with us today perhaps the best guest we ever could have asked for when it comes to discussing this movie uh, because it is Matilda herself you all you know everyone out there like this is this is a really exciting thing for Michael and I we got to talk to Mara Wilson who of course played Matilda and she was a delight and uh, we want to introduce her to you now
Okay, everybody, this is such a treat for us. We have a really special guest uh, that I'm about to introduce. I was lucky enough to meet her some years ago um, uh, through our mutual friend, Sarah Thayer, who's wonderful and I love her, and she introduced us. And it was such a fabulous dinner and we've stayed in touch. But when thinking about who could be a good guest to have on an episode about the movie Matilda, pinch me now because we have Matilda herself here, the fantastic Mara Wilson. Welcome, Mara. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Both Michael and I rewatched Matilda. Uh, we we like to rewatch the films in prep for our episodes. And I think I might have mentioned to you in the past that I was very late to Matilda, probably because of my age. And it was really through Jinx Monsoon, my drag daughter, who kept saying to me, like, when are we going to do Matilda? When are we going to do Matilda? And I was <laughs> I somehow had missed it because I think probably by the time it came out, I think it came out in 1996, I was graduating from college, right? So I wasn't the target demographic for the film's release. And so it was Jinx who showed it to me years later and I fell in love with it. And then re-watching it with Michael, both of us feel the same way that we did about Little Shop of Horrors, which we rewatched recently, where it's like, this is such a fucking good movie. Yeah. It is so yeah. good. It's so well made. It's so it's so unique. And so I guess where where to start, because you were so young when you made it, is just like you were in a bunch of movies, actually two movies that are bona fide cult movies that yeah. have stood the test of time, right? Like Mrs. Doubtfire, also another one that everyone asks me to do. Um, you know, you're you're a kid and now you're part of these things that will be screened and watched, you know, forever. When you're making Matilda uh, at that young age, um, what was it like? What are your memories? I mean, I, I know that's like a, a very broad question. I don't, I don't think that I thought it would be as big as it turned out to be. And the truth is that when it first came out, uh, my cat is making an appearance here. Um, uh, when uh, he's being very sweet. This is my cat, Theo. Theo's also totally gay. Um, we know oh, this I because we have seen him hump other cats. And also he's obsessed with Gillian Anderson. Um, oh, well, yeah. yeah. Great taste, Theo. Yes. yes. He, anytime Julian Anderson is in anything, he, like, comes running and he sits on our laps and, like, he always wants to watch, like, gay cult movies with us, like, All About Eve and, like, Angels in America and stuff. Like, he's oh, always wow. on my lap during those. He's my he's my Am sensitive gay son. Yes, he's a, he's a white <laughs> yeah, yeah, chubby. Yeah. Uh, so it doesn't surprise me that he joined me for this. But, yes, I, I don't think I, I mean, I, I had no idea of the magnitude of it, except that I knew that I really loved the book. And I was very young when I discovered the book. In fact, my mother, uh, my mother was very theatrical. My mother uh, had, you know, attended Northwestern for theater, which kind of tells you a little bit about what my mom was like. Uh, she was a she was a a loud, expressive uh, Midwestern Jew, and there was she she loved to perform. And so even when she wasn't actually acting, because she had you know five kids to take care of and was doing more like menial jobs and stuff, uh, kind of you know like early 90s Roseanne kind of stuff. Um, we were we were like, um, like she had jobs, but she didn't really have a career, but she loved acting. And so she would come to our schools. She would come to my brother's schools and she would read Matilda out loud for them. And they wow. loved it and it was wonderful. And because of that, I, I fell in love with it at a young age because I remember one time, I think I had like an ear infection or something and uh, I couldn't stay home and she couldn't find a babysitter. So she just brought me with me and... 
when I was like a little, little kid, I was very well behaved. A little bit older, maybe not so much, but when I was a very young child, I was well behaved. And so I just kind of sat at the back of the room, like cuddled up in blankets and just listened to her read this this book. And I was captivated because I had never heard a story about like such a strong little girl and a little girl fighting back against you know, tyranny and mean people and all of these things. And I think my mom probably saw a lot of herself in Matilda because she had grown up with parents who were you know, very, very difficult. My my grandfather was very troubled and my grandmother was very mean. And so I think that she saw a lot of herself in Matilda because she kind of used her intelligence to try to escape that too. So uh, I loved the book. And when I was sent the script, I was like, is it going to be like the book? Is it going to be like the book? And it was, and I remember falling in love with it. And I, I was just like, I, I need to have this part. For, for me, it was kind of parts were like easy come, easy go. But Matilda, I, I knew I needed it. And when I went in there, I, I met with Danny DeVito and we had an instant rapport. Like he just felt like family to me. And I, I was so thrilled. It, it just felt, I don't know, it, it felt, I, I was never, I don't think I was ever entitled or, or, I mean, I'm sure I was entitled. I was a child actor, but I, I never thought like there were roles that I, were ent- I was entitled to or anything. But, but when I look back on that now, it just feels like I always knew that I needed to play this part and I really wanted to play this part. And uh and it, it felt kind of meant to be, and I'm not a meant to be person, but it felt kind of meant to be. So uh, I loved it. I mean, it, it, we filmed at a very hard time in my life when my mother had cancer, and uh, but but the people on the set were just wonderful to me. I, I had a wonderful time. Danny and Rhea became like, you know, an, an, aunt and an, an aunt and an uncle. They would invite me over to their house and we would have fun there. And they had the best house ever. Like it was a kid's paradise. They had, you know, pinball machines. They had a little guest house in the backyard that they turned into a movie theater. Uh, and they even had like candy there. They had a pool. They had a trampoline. Their their place, and they had amazing food all the time uh, and dogs and cats. And it was just paradise. They had an art room, a room just for art, which I wow. mean, I loved. Yeah, I, it was it was really, it was the coolest place. It was like better than Disneyland for a kid. <laughs> I and they were really nice to me and Embeth who played Miss Honey was like my big sister and so many of the kids on set were so much fun like we used to go to the park after work sometimes like Roxbury Park which is right by the Sony lot and uh or, or is it is it the Fox I don't know it was it's near one of the lots we used to go to the the park all the time after work and we'd go out to dinner with some of the kids and we had just so many fun stories and adventures and and uh, and Pam, you know, uh, Pam Ferris, who played Miss Trunchbull, is the nicest person, of course. Uh, and oh, so no. so we had a wonderful time with her, too. And I mean, I look back on it now and, and I do have some memories of it being a very hard time and me being very sad or struggling through different things or and it took a lot of work. Like there were times that I had to come in there on Saturdays, but it was mm. uh, but it was it, it feels like summer camp. When I look back on filming it, it, it feels like summer camp. And I don't know. When I was a kid, I don't think I ever thought about how movies I was in would be received, but right. you know, ultimately, I think I am very happy about uh, about the way that you know it has become this huge cult hit. Yeah. Well, well, and you talk about first connecting to Matilda because you liked the book, mm-hmm. and I think that in discussing this movie, we can't not look at the darkness of Roald Dahl and the work that he did. Yeah. Beca- because if you sort of look at the trajectory of, of his works for children, things like The Witches or even Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which is set up like a slasher movie to some extent, <laughs> there yeah. is a operative darkness, but 
also, you spoke to the idea of it was the first time you really saw a book where a, a child stands up against tyranny. I think a some... lot of people who don't like Matilda, who, or who don't like other Roald Dahl books, love Matilda. Because Matilda mm. is, is sort of a good versus evil story, and it's somebody using really the best resources that we have in this world, which are education and friendship, <laughs> you know, and, and learning and not just schooling, but, but self-educating as well and, and friendship and, and community and solidarity and those kinds of things to take down a tyrant. And so that I think is, is, you know, that is very pure. That is very wholesome. Some of his other books, <laughs> maybe not so wholesome. And him as a person didn't have some wholesome moments too, but you know, right. he, he was a product of his time and his place and his social class and his, you know, being a, a, you know, white British man and, and also Scandinavian. There's a lot of dark humor in Scandinavian humor that definitely comes into his books. But I think that a lot of people really love Matilda because it is probably one of the most wholesome of his books. Kids love morality though. A lot of them do. They love seeing bad people getting what they deserve. Or sometimes they look at the bad people and they think this bad person is misunderstood and they identify with a bad person. But kids seem to really like that. I think the kids still really like fairy tales. They still like that. They like a little bit of darkness. Not too much, but a little bit of darkness. I love that you brought up Danny and Rhea so early on and that you clarified uh, what we all fantasize would be your experience. <laughs> uh, because because as, as uh, well... I'm friends with you and mm -hmm. uh, Natasha Leone and Thomas Decker and a bunch of people who have started careers when they were very, very young and had a multitude of experiences working with adults, right? And yeah. so with a director like Danny DeVito, I think as a fan, as someone who loves Danny DeVito, and also for those of you who don't know, Danny DeVito makes incredible little gore movies. You, you need to seek them out uh, uh, online. A lot of people are surprised when I show them some of his gore films. You want him to be what you described, right? And I love that he, as a director, who wasn't known as a director, did go in a very audacious direction as far as the tone of the film, the um, unapologetic sort of meanness of the film and the darkness. And he went there. And I think it's one of the reasons, you know, with a lot of cult movies, it, it maybe didn't um, have the box office that they had hoped for. Mm -hmm. But over time, as it's found its audience, it has grown and grown and grown, which is the story of every cult film, right? Like, yeah. comes out, it's misunderstood. Although critics really liked this film. They did. And it did do pretty well in, in some places. I remember I was filming in Canada at the time and it did really well in Canada. It did okay in the US, but it did it did have an audience. It definitely did. But I, I do think that yeah, the appreciation, I think that VHS and DVD yeah. really made it grow and to the point now where I, I get messages from people who say I'm I'm showing it to my kids now. Yeah. It's taken on <laughs> this other generation. Uh, and and I love that. And I get messages all the time from people who say I, I decided to become a teacher or a librarian because of that movie. Right. Which blows my mind, and, and I absolutely love it. I've also heard a lot of people say, uh, <laughs> you know, your movie made me gay. Or uh, I remember meeting <laughs> right. a guy, this British guy in a bar in, in Brooklyn once when I was like 25. He's like, oh my God, are you Matilda? I was like, yes. He says, oh my God, that movie was how my mom knew I was gay. Before we went on the air, we talked about sort of the extreme dedication of the fan base of this movie. And mm -hmm. watching it, in preparation for this, one of my first notes was, oh, this movie has a general dragginess. Like a lot of characters are in drag yeah. for sure. But also the themes, the otherness, the idea of chosen family, kind of, you know, Matilda right. coming to Miss Honey and, and just the queerness of the film. 
was that really kind of the early fan base that you think adopted this film or or has that been something you- I, I think so I think there were a lot of I've I, I can't tell you how many lesbians and like queer women and bisexual women have told me that Miss Honey was their first crush <laughs> and they, they always ask me if Miss Honey was my first crush but I mean she was more of my uh Embeth was more like a sister to me however I did have my first big crush on a woman because of Rhea Perlman which I will tell you about later <laughs> uh, Rhea Perlman introduced me to somebody who I fell head over heels ah. for I hear that all the time and and a lot of like gay men have told me that Matilda is too and Danny is a very progressive person progressive values are very much his thing and and I think also I worked with a lot of different directors like Michael Ritchie who also did a lot of cult movies he was a wonderful man he was kind of like my dad's side of the family like he was sort of a little bit more stoic and he was uh, very intelligent and very kind and just like knew all these things about history and always had a kind word for everybody and uh, and some of the other directors I mean Chris Columbus was very nice but I don't remember him that well because I was five right but Danny I mean Danny I think felt kind of like family I think that he and my mom sort of had the theatricality that a lot of I, I don't know why there's like such an in in the United States why there's such like uh Jewish and Italian thing, <laughs> but it's a thing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I look at my dating history and I'm just like, ooh, Italian girl, Italian guy. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a thing. He had a dark sense of humor. And I remember him telling me about movies like Devil Doll and Freaks. And he had like all these books about camp movies. And I remember being kind of into it because I thought it always reminded me a little bit of The Twilight Zone, which was like my favorite show. And I remember my mom laughing and being like, he's a wild man. He loves wild movies. But he was also just a very progressive guy on top of that. He had two daughters that he was raising to be very strong daughters. He also had a son. And that son, Jake had hair, I think, like down to his waist. Oh, wow. <laughs> and he'd be like, Jake, do you want to cut your hair? He'd be like, no. And, you know, they'd watch music videos and stuff. And he'd be like, look, Slash has long hair. John Bon Jovi has long hair. And Danny <laughs> would be like, oh, okay, whatever. So it was very much, you know, the, the idea of like gender nonconforming and these kinds of things. He was like, he was, he was just like, yeah, do your own thing. I mean, he still marches in pride parades every year. Yeah, he's always, he's also different, you know, and he's not afraid to be, to be weird and different. And Rhea is the same way. Rhea basically did dress in drag. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, for the whole, for the whole thing. I mean, I remember watching her put on that like curly blonde wig every day. And then every time I'd see her in real life, she was in like a tank top and sweats. Right. Like, playing <laughs> basketball or something. The costuming, the production design, like the look yeah. of your house in that movie is just, you know, mm-hmm. it's just so fabulous. And clearly as a director, he is expressive and artistic. And one thing I love about what you're saying, I was thinking about the dichotomy of him as both the narrator and one of the monsters, you know, yeah. it's a really interesting thing that he chose to put his own sort of almost voice that this other character in the film as the narrator, who's and he doesn't change his voice. It's not like he's doing um, an affectation. It's so interesting. And as the audience, I never really questioned it. I was thinking about it. I'm like, that is such an odd choice, but it really works. Like you just accept that, that, that this man is the narrator and this other man is the jerky father. For me, I think I always felt like that was like that was Danny to me. Right. <laughs> like exactly. it was, it was sort of, it, it was, it was, you know, if, if I want to get really pretentious and, and, you know, uh, NYU, I could say it's a bit Brechtian. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, a bit yeah. him addressing the audience as himself. Like totally. when I, whenever I, I heard that in there and I have, and maybe this is because I do a lot of voiceover, but I have kind of a pet peeve for unnecessary VO that doesn't go anywhere and doesn't add anything or VO that's just kind of dropped 
you know, you have an introduction and then it's just dropped, especially I hate that in pilots too. And, you know, you can pull it off well if it's like somebody telling a story, Grey's Anatomy style or something like that. But, but, uh, when it's just dropped, that really bothers me. And when it doesn't go anywhere, that really bothers me. But I remember seeing the movie and seeing the, the narration of it and feeling like, oh yeah, that makes it complete. That really makes it complete. And, and I, I felt such affection listening to the narrative, to the narration in that film, because I felt like it was, it really was, it was, it was the Danny that I knew and I loved yeah. that was commenting on it. Well, I think that also something, and, and we've been speaking truth to this through this entire conversation so far, is that Danny DeVito is truly a great cult film director. And I don't yes. think he gets his due as much in that space as other people do. Uh, because you look at Matilda, Death to Smoochie, War of the Roses. War of the Roses, another movie which he also narrates, is sort of mm-hmm. what happens when you try and force a family together that's supposed to be apart. And this movie is about finding your actual family and having him narrate yeah. them both is kind of really a great bookend. You wouldn't think of putting those movies together in a double feature, but in my heart it kind of works. But yeah. what I think really works is his curation of everything that happens here. And Peach has brought up the sets. These sets are grandiose and gothic. And yeah. what's it like being a little kid in these like hammer horror looking school hallways? I mean, I thought it was awesome. I thought that it was very cool. My mother was a big cinephile, so I'd seen a lot of very stylized movies. Like I think I saw Psycho when I was like six. Wow. I'm still a little shy about gore. I can be a little, if it's not, if it's campy gore, I can do it. But like slasher movies, I kind of have trouble with. A lot of very sort of stylized stuff. I, I I really liked that. And I could see that my mom really appreciated it too. There were times it was really hard, like shooting the Bruce Bogtrotter scenes. Those were really, really hard scenes to film. The school that we filmed at, they basically built a facade of a school on the Arboretum uh, in Arcadia. <laughs> and uh, so we were always chasing peacocks away out of sight. <laughs> and it was was so hot it was so hot and we actually we would have popsicles and fudgesicles off the set but we would have to if we had any speaking lines we could only have lemon <laughs> because they would turn our tongues colors there were times that it was very hard but I, I do think that I, I liked the aesthetic of it and being in the Wormwood's house I remember I thought it looked really cool mm. I got the feeling I was like something about this feels kind of weird it felt very Las Vegas to me. Yeah. But there were like snacks in there that I think had like been around since the seventies, but nobody had actually bought stuff like fiddle faddle. Like if there were a bo- if there ended up like have, being a box of Quisp there, I wouldn't have been surprised. It was very very campy, and I remember being like, "Wow, like I never get to eat this at home." And and now I I grow up and I'm like, "Oh, because it's not healthy. <laughs> it's not good for <laughs> you." My my parents wouldn't have allowed that, and uh, and so I remember being. Yeah, being there felt felt kind of otherworldly, but it also felt very cool. And it was so interesting to me the way that the way that Matilda dresses, I think, is very is is much more down to earth, and she kind of has her own style, and she kind of has her own thing. Matilda's style is a bit cottagecore, I realize now, but like it was so stylized, but it was fun. I mean, kids like that kind of over the top kind of thing. It, it looked like a Nickelodeon set, right? You now where there's all the big colors, and there's sort of an inherent campiness to a lot of children's things. So uh, I like that. I thought it was cool. I don't think I would have wanted to live there, but it felt fun (laughs) getting to go there every day. And it's also a really interesting way to sort of not date the movie. Like when you watch Matilda today, it would be very hard to go, oh, this movie came out in 1996 because it's it's styled so, it's taking its influences and aesthetic from so many different eras. Um, And I wanted to talk a little bit about sort of how this movie 
Uh, obviously, the story, because it's so old, inspired other, I'm sure, obviously, J.K. Rowling probably, uh, you know, had had um, seen either the movie or read the book because, you know, there's a little bit of Harry Potter that uh, owes, owes uh, a debt of gratitude to Matilda. <laughs> Philosopher's Stone is so rural doll. It's yeah. so rural doll to, to the the exaggeration of the Dursleys and the and the little songs that break out that the Sorting Hat sings, things like that. Like, you yeah. can tell. I mean, I, she kind of vo- found her voice later on. Sometimes I wish she... Oh, right. Let's, <laughs> let's not... herself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I, and, you know, I did not bring her up to bring everyone down. Yeah, no, but you know. It goes without saying, especially to our audience, like, we are all bummed the fuck out by J.K. Rowling. But um, I do think, you know, the cultural impact. Yeah. Yeah. There's a British, like, love for for darkness and love for weird things and love for for this sort of this because I think uh, the so much of the culture in the country has to be a kind of keep calm and carry on kind of thing Mm -hmm. that the, the flip side of that is always very weird. Yeah. If you have a if you have a country that's very structured, a lot of the art that comes out of it is like really weird and extreme and very cool. I mean, I think I feel like a lot of the the you know coolest art I've ever seen came out of Germany <laughs> right. uh, or or Japan, and those have very strict codes of conduct. There's a very strict code of conduct there, but you you come out of there, and and of course I'm generalizing, um, but but I do feel like that is something. There there is an inherent Britishness to it, which I know some people had a problem with. They were like, Matilda, Matilda should be British. Matilda should be British. And, uh, and I do know some, some Brits like sort of did not consider the movie canon because it wasn't British. People talk to me about the musical a lot, but I don't have anything to do with the musical and the musical isn't related to the movie in any way. And I mean, I've seen it and it's like, it's like a good musical and it's very cute and I really liked it. But, but uh, people will be like, oh, are you going to be in the musical? Are you going to do this? And I'm like, no, they, they, they wanted their own interpretation. And it's funny because because I, I think a lot of British people were like, oh, this is our definition of, this is our version of Matilda. Uh, but the the person who, who wrote the musical, <laughs> who wrote all the music for it is Australian, <laughs> to mention. So it's like, right. it's like, guys, you had to bring in other, other you know, Commonwealth right. countries too. Come on now. Uh, so it's, and, and that I think is kind of funny. Yeah. I, I do appreciate the discussion of seeing how perhaps in the Philosopher's Stone, uh, she who shall not be named uh, might have pulled <laughs> upon uh, Matilda. But I, when watching this, was thinking of a different author and uh, some literary comparisons. And it leads us kind of into this discussion of gateway horror. Because obviously when I watch Matilda, I see a little Carrie there. And I can't help oh, but wonder yeah. if Stephen oh, yeah. King... Uh, hadn't you know been a fan of Roald Dahl when writing Carrie because I know the book pre- predates when he wrote Carrie. Oh, yeah, he was super into all kinds of horror. I know in on writing he talks about how when his wife had uh, their first child, he was sitting in like an afternoon horror matinee. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I mean, I wonder about that. I don't know if Roald Dahl was really as big at the time, but probably there was like a lot of British anthology horror that he was watching. I'm sure, sure. that probably yeah. had something to do with it. And I do wonder if if anything. You know, he he ever wrote if if there was that, but uh, I do think that Roald that Roald Dahl tends to be sort of extreme and expressionistic and and very uh, over the top. Whereas a lot of a lot of Stephen King's horror, well, I guess no, some of it is very over the top, but it always feels rooted kind of in the real world. Right. It's more it's more magical realist than over the top fantasy. I know what you mean. It it starts in the real world, right? Like yeah. it, it's very Americana um, and yeah. he really tries and he does he succeeds at connecting to these everyday things that we experience as far as characters go. 
Um, yeah. But of course, when you watch Matilda, it, it, Carrie has to come to mind. Um, and mm-hmm. I love that you brought up Stephen King's book on writing, because as yeah. an aside, if, if you're at all interested in writing or just a fan of Stephen King's, uh, mm-hmm. please read that book. It is such an underrated gem of a book, and I just love it so much. And uh, yeah, I always recommend book. it to people. I didn't just bring up Carrie because of, you know, the, the comparisons, but the idea that when we talk about a movie like Matilda and this sort of trajectory of fandom, that idea of gateway horror, because there are spooky and intense things that happen in this movie that maybe other children's films would shy away from. You mentioned the Bruce Bogtrotter scene, and I'm glad you brought that up earlier, because to me, even watching it as an adult, it makes me never want to eat cake ever again in my life. <laughs> uh, poor Jimmy, who who ate the cake, he didn't actually like chocolate cake very much. Oh, no. I know, poor thing, right? I, I asked him about it like a week after we started filming. I was like, what do you think about chocolate cake? He's like, it's okay. I thought, oh, no. And then a week later... I asked him and he got this like thousand yard stare. It was like, I'm just so sick of it. (laughs) Poor thing. And it took a long time to film those scenes. There's so many, there's so many different shots in it. And I remember on the call sheet, they said like how long he'd be working and they just drew an eternity symbol. Oh Oh, no. no. (laughs) Obviously he only worked eight or nine hours because we were kids. Right. It's good to know that behind the scenes, he was committing. (laughs) You're right, Michael. And this goes back to Danny DeVito and sort of his decision to go in. And I think it really pays off. And when we look at films with a lot of darkness that are geared towards children or about children, well, Carrie, which is for adults, but, you know, Carrie has Margaret White and, you know, The Wizard of Oz has Margaret Hamilton as the Wicked Witch. Mm. And so I think we have to talk about Trunchbull in terms of the way we we identify her as such a monster, I feel like the performance is incredible. The way it was written is really over the top and it just works so well and it's so effective. Yeah. It really is, and I also think that Pam effectively communicates the idea that she is terrifying, but also that she is a coward. Mm-hmm. And that she's done, uh, you know, the, the, the scene where she's afraid of the cat. And I know in the book, they're always tricking her and they're always like pulling pranks on her. And that just enrages her further. In the movie, there's not that much. She kind of has a tight grip on it until Matilda calls her out and, you know, sends her away. She just showed all the levels and all the layers there to it, I think. And I knew Pam was very, very nice. I knew that she was a nice person. And sometimes reading the book, the Trunchbull scared me a little bit. And I remember telling my mom that and she said, just use that. You know, very, very Stanislavski, or actually, I guess, very Strasberg. She was like, yeah, you, you just, you just need to use that to really get that across. But it's funny when, you know, when my nieces and nephews watch it now, they just think it's really funny because they know that it's me and they know that it's all pretend and they know that Pam was very nice. And it's interesting also, because I think some people mention the scariness of it, but I think that more people, when I talk to them, mention the wholesomeness of it. Mm. And they mention the chosen family narrative. I, yeah. I hear a lot from people who say, I had family that didn't understand me. Now I have a partner that really loves me. I have wonderful friends. I have a wonderful job. I have this. I have that. You know, I was in foster care. I had a step parent who was cruel to me. I had this. I had that. And I'm obviously very sorry they had to go through that, but I'm glad that it could give them help. And I think for a long time, yeah, I didn't really understand that. Yeah, and that's the cult. Like, that kind of gets to 
sort of the the whole thing with this podcast. It's like cult movies are often created by people who feel passionate about this content. You know, clearly yeah. the Rocky Horror Picture Show spoke to a generation of people, multi-generations of people who did not feel understood by the rest of the world yeah. and, and, and gathered. And I think Matilda, what you just described is exactly what it hit upon, which is it spoke to people who, who needed to feel heard. And um, yeah. yeah, what a beautiful thing to be part of that. Yeah, I, I don't think I always realized that. I think it took me probably like 20 years to realize what it, mm. what it meant to people. Uh, it, it took me such a long time to realize that this was something that got people through something. I used yeah. to be so annoyed when people would call me Matilda because it almost felt like, it felt kind of like being confused for like an older sibling who's actually cooler than you. <laughs> you know, it, <laughs> yeah. it, because I, I was like, oh, they like Matilda more than they like me. Carrie Fisher has a great quote about how she said, Princess Leia and I have kind of melded over the years. And I feel like, yeah. like I understand that. I understand where she's coming from with that because I'm just like, yep, I definitely feel like a lot of Matilda's values are my values and a lot of the things that she does, I do. And I don't think I'm as brave as her. And I know I'm not as smart as her, but she does still inspire me as a character, as an archetype. So with that in mind, you know, you talk about the people you've spoken to and how uh, they have talk to you about how this movie has informed them and what it's meant to them. Could you speak a little bit to your engagement with the fan base over the years and and just kind of witnessing the people who truly love this movie? For me, when I was a child, it was really hard to connect, to really grasp the fact that I had fans. That just didn't make any sense to me. And, and for me, I think I associated it with you know, kind of like being recognized to me was a little bit like when uh, when everybody sings to you in a restaurant on your birthday for most people. <laughs> yeah. Like it just felt kind of embarrassing to get that that kind of attention. Uh, that said, I will say I actually like it when people sing to me on my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like that attention, but it, it felt very out of control, you know, and it felt very awkward. And I was just like, oh, OK, this isn't do I deserve this? I had imposter syndrome for years. I still do. Uh, and so I feel like I, I really struggled with that for a long time. But I, I mean, I've 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 had people, you know, say to me that this changed their lives and, and, and I have to kind of sit back and take that in and and realize that. And, and that is truly an honor. I think that also writing about it, like writing about Matilda in my book kind of helped me. I, I had a college professor who said, I think you should write a letter to Matilda. I think that would help you. Uh, and it did. It did because uh, it it felt like I could kind of air some of my frustrations and frustrations and grievances, but also talk about the love that I had for that character and and all that she did and all that she was. Um, a lot of people want a Matilda sequel, and I'm I'm kind of not sure how that would be possible. Um, a lot of people, and it's funny because people always say the same thing to me. They always say it should be that Matilda has a child and that child has powers. And I don't quite think that makes sense because I think that a lot of Matilda's powers came from her having to fend for herself and having to fight back and honestly processing trauma, you know, yeah. and, and, and being able to do that in a way with friends and family and her own education and such. It, it, it came from the setting that she was in. And also, I, I don't know, the idea of Matilda, like, getting married and having children, like, maybe, you know, maybe she did, maybe she would, but I kind of... I kind of like that we don't know she she's she's a child, you know. She's and she's a person on her own. And so her being a 
a like a mother and like who would she be married to and and you know or who would she be partnered with (laughs) (laughs) that's well that's a thing that's a thing but you know that that's a thing is like is like speculate on her you know speculate on on her her sexuality and her orientation and all of these things and it's like you know i i also wouldn't want to let anybody down by this and and do these things like I, i wouldn't want to uh and that's the thing i think that she she the great thing about Miss Honey is that she she is like a single woman who lives her mm-hmm. life and and does these things independently. And I I I love stories where you know who women go off and they marry women or they marry what men and they're very happy with their lives or they they partner with somebody and they have love affairs they have children these you know I, I love I love that that idea but the whole idea of Matilda is that Matilda has a different kind of family right mm-hmm. and so and so this is a narrative I think that isn't about a traditional family. So I, I think that if I were to do a Matilda, like if I were to write it, which, you know, I probably won't because I also think that people want so much of it. And I'm like, guys, you want so much from it. Write your own fan fiction. Right. You know, that's what fan fiction is for. I, I love that. But the idea of like, um, the idea, uh, I, I would probably want more of like Matilda as like a teacher or a librarian or a college professor or somebody like that, you know, a scientist, something, something like that and helping students in, in that capacity. And uh, I, I think that that's the more reasonable take. And people are like, so Matilda becomes Professor X. <laughs> right. And I was like, maybe, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, that's a, I love that take. And I, I, I totally get what you're saying about, um, you know, let the fans fantasize about, you know, what, what happens because people are going to have different fantasies. But to that point, I think, you know, we brought up She Who Shall Not Be Named, who very greatly disappointed a lot of us. But I think on the flip mm-hmm. side, it's important to remember that because this film has spoken to so many outsiders, queer or not, people who are outsiders, mm-hmm. um, what a cool thing when you came out and validated, like the woman who played this young girl that mm-hmm. so many people identified with, the the actor that they understand isn't the same person, but I just love that, that that's your, you know, your gift in a way was sort of sharing your truth and it really validated a ton of people. And I remember talking specifically to Jinx about it. Like it was kind of like, this is the icing on the cake of an already amazing, <laughs> you know, because they, they grew up, it is you, nice, know? you know? Yeah. So how cool. And, and you gave that, you know, by sharing, sharing that, you know, you gave that to so well, many people. It's so funny when I think back on all the girls that I auditioned with, all the people actually, because some are non-binary, but all the people that I auditioned with when I was young. And uh, and it was funny because we never really looked alike, but we always had something in common. And it would be like me, Evan Rachel Wood, Kristen Stewart, Kylie Sparks, maybe like Aaliyah Shawkat and, and, you know, Mae Whitman and all these people. And we all went out for the same parts all the time. And none of us looked like each other and casting directors know something Uh. (laughs) they do they were like that kid they they probably knew like that kid that kid's probably gonna grow up to be queer that kid's probably you know gender non-conforming they probably we all had this this uh this sort of sameness about us and i just think it's so funny where i look at it now and i'm like oh my gosh i lost so many parts to Kristen stewart and uh (laughs) And how funny is that? Yeah. And I bet if I went on Raya, I would probably like be dating all of her exes too. <laughs> right. Raya, right. Uh, but there's, um, but yeah, that's, that's something. Everybody loves this story and this is a story. So after I did Matilda, Rhea Perlman had a sitcom called Pearl. Mm. 
and it's actually wonderful and I wish that CBS would release it and it, it had a stacked cast we had we had Carol Kane Malcolm McDowell who else Dash Mayhawk was in it like so many wonderful wonderful actors and there was this one actress on set and when you do a sitcom you're filming for a week so being in a sitcom is a little like being in a play uh, you're rehearsing every day until finally you do you you shoot it and it was one of my favorite filmmaking experiences ever. Everybody on that set was wonderful. Everybody on that set was so funny, so cool. And there was one actress there and her character was supposed to hate mine because uh, she was in college and she was very, very competitive. And I was playing a nine-year-old genius. Uh, and she always, she hated my character because she was like, that girl is just, you know, uh, she was a prodigy and I could have been a prodigy. Uh, but she she came up and she told me, she was like, I just want you to know I really do like you. <laughs> I know that my character doesn't, but I want you to make, I, I want to make sure that you know that I like you. And she was so kind and so lovely. And she just radiated intelligence. And she had these like beautiful 90s sweaters on. And she was so, and I, I was just like, wow, you're beautiful and you're smart and you're kind. And like one day, I think she didn't come to set because she had food poisoning or something. And I was devastated because I wanted so badly to see her and just sort of bask in her glow. <laughs> And that woman was Lucy Liu. Wow. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. Yeah. Lucy Liu was my first big crush. And and it was, yeah. And and I realized later, I was like, oh, wow, yeah. I was I was totally head over heels, you know, nine-year-old head over heels for Lucy Liu. Well. But, like, what queer nine-year-old girl wouldn't be? Right? I was going to say, <laughs> I'm as gay as it gets. And yeah, I would have but, a crush on Lucy Liu. You know, like, yeah. fierce. You know, I mean, just so yeah. good. Oh, that's so cool. I, yeah. I, and I, the whole time I was like, I hope Mara brings it back around to that tease that <laughs> yeah. she da- dangled in front of us at the beginning of this interview. I have to. Um, well, you're a pro, because I, I was Truly. like, we better get back to that. Yeah. Yeah, that was a very formative experience. And still one of the most fun filming experiences I've ever had in my life, being on that show. Just so many wonderful people this is kind of a a very full circle thing like you introduced with the tease but you also talked about how wonderful danny devito and rhea perlman are which we really i think all of us listeners just love 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 hearing that i know when you and i had um dinner we talked a little bit about robin williams and i think you know that's a subject that's maybe for another midnight mass episode if you would ever agree Mm -hmm. to come back i think we could do an idol we do these things where we call them idol worship where we we would dedicate an entire episode Mm -hmm. just to Robin, right? Because that's an idol. I, I think I remember you talking about this when I saw you at the Castro for the first time. Just uh, Robin Williams also was very San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. He just he his heart and soul was in that city, and he always gave back to it so much, and he loved it so much, and that was something. He he really was a part of it, and he insisted that they filmed there, and that was really I fell in love with San Francisco when I was five years old, and we always joke that. Uh, my sister uh, was, my mom was like eight, nine months pregnant with my sister oh. when we were there. And my sister is the most San Francisco person you will ever meet. <laughs> she used to walk around. She went She went to college there for a few years before she transferred. And she, she used to walk around barefoot. And we had to be like, please put on some shoes, okay? You're going <laughs> to step on some glass. But but just like this wide-eyed flower child. And we always say, like, she should have been born there. Oh, my mom funny. went back to L.A. to have her, but she should have been born there. And uh, But I feel like when you're, when you're a baby in San Francisco, you know, and you're hanging out 
with Robin Williams and you're hanging. It, it really was just like the soul of San Francisco <laughs> came into her yeah. at a very young age. <laughs> That's amazing. Although uh, but, I will say this, yeah. you do not want to walk around the city barefoot. You do no. not. <laughs> we, we told her that. I lived in New York. I lived in New York. Right. I was like, I was like, Anna, Anna, you're going to step on glass. Yeah. You're going to step on needles. You're going to step on so many gross things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and finally she was like, okay. And she, I think she got either Birkenstocks or those shoes that look like feet. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it was like 2011 yeah, at the time, yeah. but and we were just kind of like, we give up. Okay. But That's yeah, I, I think that yeah, I think that that Robin, I mean, was a definitely big impact on me and on on so many people. And but but yeah, I think that that you kind of can't. He meant so much to San Francisco, and he meant so much to to comedy and and film. You know, yeah. he was really he was somebody. There's some people when you know when when they die or when they when they like it, like they are a part of that industry and they are a part of like the real heart of it. Yeah, and uh, I think he was. And I think one of the reasons he liked San Francisco and this was his home is because there was part of him that wasn't fully invested in the industry, if that makes sense. And I remember, yeah, definitely. You know, he so the, I, this is for another podcast. We're gonna uh, beg Mara to come back on, but just. Just, you know, just as an aside, he, I ran a movie theater for many, many years. The movie theater where yeah. we did Midnight Mass was the Bridge Theater, and I was the manager. And Robin um, would come to see any movie. You know, he, he didn't live too far from that movie theater. And I will say that uh, it was, for someone so A-list and such a huge superstar, you would never have known it the way he yeah. behaved, you know, and the way he would bring his kids and they you know i remember uh we had one hour photo which for those of you who don't know is a great robin williams film brilliant um yeah, and it's a thriller film, yeah. and it's an unusual film for him and uh and so he would wait until the audience went in and then he would come and we would say you don't have to buy a ticket you don't you'd always want to buy a ticket because of course you know it helps the box office gross and you know he would insist but you know baseball cap and he would go in and watch it and I loved knowing that, like, he's just in there enjoying this film he made. And because it was a thriller, you know, you could hear the audience reacting to it. And uh, he was so cool. And yeah, if if you would agree to come back on, Mara, we would love to talk to you about, you know, Mrs. Doubtfire in a future episode. Yeah. I mean, I was so little at the time, but like, it, it is really, it is really funny. I actually got a, a DM from Harvey Firestein a couple of years back and he called me his little niece. Aww. <laughs> Which is so funny. Yeah, it was so, it's such a strange, like, it's it's also really funny seeing how, like, and it probably doesn't surprise anybody that I spent my 20s hanging out with, like, sideshow performers and burlesque performers and, like, yeah. <laughs> and, like, over the top, you know, all kinds of, like, weird comedy and drag and stuff like that. Like, that was kind of my world in my 20s and still kind of is in my 30s, actually. And, and I'm just like, okay, but I, but I look at the way that I grew up and look at who, you know, was around me and look at who raised me. And uh, it's the same thing that I feel like when I need to apologize for how much, I don't apologize for this, but like, I secretly love New Jersey a lot. And I'm like, look, if you had Danny DeVito as a surrogate uncle, you too would have. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you too would have very tender associations with New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. He's basically been canonized as a saint there. And justly so, you know. There are people out there that appreciate the weird, and we've got to celebrate that, you know? We've got to, we've got to embrace them. Right. That's really what we're all about here at Midnight Mass. If, if we yeah. didn't celebrate the weird, Peaches and I wouldn't know who we were. You know, that's just weird is in what informs us, and I would rather yeah. be weird than anything else. The truth through being over the top and, you know, extra and weird. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 
For sure. Well, yeah. Mara, thank you so much for coming on. You've been an incredible guest, thank as you. we knew you would thank be. You. And I feel like we could talk to you for Absolutely. hours and hours and hours. <laughs> and, I, and I just love the way your mind thinks. You're so smart. Thank and you. Um, right I just am you. so glad that we met. And um, I just enjoy you so much. And I know you and I have talked more than once, but someday when when live events come back, you know, I've yeah, been, I've I'll been, have to make a cameo. Yeah, I've been poking Mara. <laughs> You know, I, I, mean, I definitely <laughs> want to do a Matilda event at some point. So, um, yeah, just thank you so much and so much love to you and your gay cat. Yes, you too. <laughs> yes, I, I will give him, I will give him, say bye, Theo. Bye, I will Theo. give him lots of love. <laughs> and then, um, and then we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll go watch something campy, okay? Yay. I promise. <laughs> Perfect. I promise. That was our interview with a fantastic and wonderful Mara Wilson. That was a real treat. Michael, how how did you think that went? I absolutely loved Mara's insight on this movie and the fact that you can tell she has spent a lot of years really thinking about this film and its impact and how it's connected to this audience that she has spent the last few decades listening to uh, tell her about what it meant to them. And what really, really spoke to me was how she said that she herself sat down to write a letter to Matilda. And it was in that moment she sort of unpacked her own relationship with the character. Uh, because I think that it's important for people to understand that when a movie like this is released and has such resonance for viewers, it also has resonance for the people who live the experience and make the movie. And, you know, she was living with Matilda her, her whole life and will continue to. Um, and I thought that was a very special thing that she shared. I've been able to meet some people who have played those roles. I know we talked about Linda Blair, where as a young person, this one role that you play makes an imprint on your entire life, you know. And I think for Mara, uh, Matilda is a, is that especially. I mean, she is Matilda this movie has come to mean so much for so many people. The other thing I thought was really, really lovely about it was this nice uh, conversation about the queerness validation that exists in the film and then the knowledge that a queer young woman plays the hero you know, in this film that, that meant so much to so many queer people because of the the sort of subtext about accepting difference and you know, finding your tribe and chosen family. And, you know, I mean, of course, it could have happened just as easily with a straight woman, um, you know, obviously, because uh, we, we all love, you know, The Wizard of Oz and other movies that do the same thing. But, you know, Mara has come out uh, as, uh, as a queer woman, and that's just awesome. You know, I love that. And she got to be on our queer-ass podcast about cult movies. Right, and you can tell that she truly appreciates and revels in the queerness of this thing that she did as a kid that helped inform other people's queerness and probably in some ways helped her on her journey to her own, which I think is amazing. Did I ever tell you how I met Mara? Uh, it was at a dinner party, right? I don't know if I know the full details. <laughs> okay, this is so embarrassing to admit. So my friend Sarah Thire, who's so wonderful and so hilarious and if you don't follow her on Twitter you really should 
Uh, she's an author. She's an actress. If you're a fan of Strangers with Candy, she plays the gym coach in the TV show oh, right. Strangers with Candy. And anyway, Sarah and I have been friends for years, and I was in L.A. doing DragCon. And Sarah said, um, are you free in the evening? Why don't you meet me and some of my girlfriends for dinner? So my partner Nihat and I went and met Sarah. We went to a restaurant. And I sat down next to Mara. Now, Mara so sweetly said to me right away that she was a fan of peaches. Now, in my mind, maybe I, maybe it's self-hate or something, because then I, I probably thought less of her. Like, oh, really? Well, good for you. You know, um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm sitting there, and she was so lovely and so wonderful. And I'm listening, and as we're talking, this is so embarrassing. I can't believe I'm about to admit this. Somehow, the subject of Robin Williams is brought up, and I bring up this story, uh, like about how Robin used to come to the Bridge Theater, much like we discussed in the during the interview. But I'm kind of bringing it up as if these other people don't have any experience. Like I have the most experience with Robin Williams because uh, I served him popcorn at least three times, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then Mara so sweetly starts talking about Robin. And get becomes emotional, like like uh, obviously emotional, and then asks if we can change the subject because she said it's it's uh, it's still too hard for her. And as she's talking, I realize who she is, and I'm like so <laughs> embarrassed, and I go, "Oh my god, you're fucking Mara Wilson." She's like, "Yeah," which is ridiculous because she looks like. She's Mara Wilson. Like, there's a, it just never occurred to me. And, and I'm sitting next to her at dinner, and I said, oh, my God, I love you. Oh, my God, you're Matilda. Oh, my God, Mrs. Doubtfire. You know, all these things. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you realize that she's kind of like, oh, I guess he really didn't know who I was. But Sarah, you know, is one of these people whose friends are all these celebrities. So she didn't tell me, like, oh, by the way, this is who I'm inviting to dinner, you know. Right. So it felt really like a dingbat. But then Nihat and I got to give Mara a ride home afterwards. We took her t back to her place. And I was super dorked out. And I said, oh, my God, could I please take a photo with you? Because I need to send it to Jinx immediately and, and tell her, you know, that I had dinner with you. And she was like, sure, absolutely. And then ever since then, we've just, you know, we exchanged numbers and, you know, have stayed in touch. But... That was how I met her, was like a, a dorkily, you know, embarrassing, my, putting my foot in my mouth. Can you believe it, Michael? Can you believe that I'd ever put my heel in my mouth? Never. No, no, not you. <laughs> I actually was thinking, I was like, and the moral of this story is when you have dinner with Peaches Christ, you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was just so embarrassed. Oh, my God. Because it was really obvious to everyone at the table, like, wow, that idiot just really didn't recognize her. And... And I was like, I've seen Robin Williams three times, you know. <laughs> and I mean, I'm telling the woman who played his daughter in one of the best movies right. ever. Yeah. Anyway, um, well, Mara is not our only guest, Michael. Yes, it's true. And I am so excited for our next guest because this person really, when you talk about finding your tribe, was one of a wave of digital content creators who kind of struck the claim on the YouTube space before people even realized 
the power of what being a influencer or a YouTuber could be. He has spoken on queer issues and used his platform as a digital creator to raise money for clean water in countries that have none and to speak out on queer causes. He is a New York Times bestselling author. He does lifestyle brands and he is someone who really, really, really loves Matilda. And I cannot wait to talk to him about this movie. Please welcome the amazing Connor Franta we're about to talk to right now. Welcome back, listeners. Of course, you cannot have a cult film without the cult members who make it up. And luckily today, we are joined not just by an avowed Matilda superfan, but a groundbreaking YouTube personality who has used his amazing platform for activism and to bring visibility to queer causes. He's also the creator of the Common Culture Lifestyle brand, which offers clothing, coffee, and beyond. And he's one of the founders of Herdwell, a record label dedicated to shining a light on emerging artists. In addition to all of that, he's the New York Times bestselling author of such books as A Work in Progress and Note to Self. And as of October 19th, his latest book, House Fires, is out now. Please welcome Connor Franta. What an introduction. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh my gosh. It's so good to have you here. And you know, since we're talking about Matilda and your connection to it, I think the obvious place to begin is, when did you first discover this movie? So Matilda... It, it, you know, it was a part of my childhood. It came out in 1996 and I was born in 1992. And I feel like it is genuinely, aside from Disney films, one of the earliest films of my memory. And it's something that I both grew up with, but still, you know, it's a rarity. I still appreciate it to this day. I can still watch it to this day and say that is a good film. It is mm. a genuinely unique quality film. I'm much older than you, and um, that's that's something that's constantly uh, being brought up on this podcast um, by myself, actually, because I'm obsessed with the fact that I'm old now. Um, but but Connor, I have to tell you, uh, it's been really exciting for me as someone who grew up in the '80s because I was born in the '70s, um, and, and very nostalgic for the '80s and the movies I grew up with. That in the early part of my midnight movie career and cult movie career, um, I was part of a group of um, exhibitors who started screening things that we sort of thought of as nostalgia films. Because before the 80s, there wasn't cable television, there wasn't VHS players. People didn't have access to movies. You either got to see The Wizard of Oz once a year on TV, or you didn't see it, you know, or, or maybe it was re-released in the cinemas. So nostalgia films for me, for my generation, the first generation to have them include things like The Goonies, Poltergeist, things that we grew up obsessively watching, right? Well, as I got older and my audience got younger, I had to lean into um, learning from younger people about what movies were nostalgia films for them. And so my drag daughter, Jinx Monsoon, at one point, you know, who I do many, many shows with, basically grabbed me, shook me and said, I'm going to sit you down and you're going to watch Matilda. You have no idea what this means to my generation. And I think you and Jinx are closer in age. And I sat down and I watched it kind of like I was with Hocus Pocus as well. I think I had dismissed it when it came out because I was like in my 20s, right? So it didn't seem cool for someone like me. But as an adult, watching both those films, but especially Matilda, 
what a great movie. You know, like, it's just a really good movie. And it has all those things that speak to the transgressive quality of a cult movie. So I totally get why your generation was attracted to it. It's fucking dark. It's so dark. And I think I I don't even appreciate that. I haven't appreciated that until like (laughs) present day. It's one of those films, the more you watch it, the more you realize the depths of its darkness. I mean, every other scene, just like the close-up scenes of of Miss Trunchable and like Mm -hmm. the way she's dripping and she's spitting (laughs) and she's like, her teeth are rotting and she's using like the closest things to cuss words that you can use in a children's film. She's calling them like little puss warts and it's like (laughs) genuinely chilling. Yeah. Because we're talking about it now, how you said when you watch it and you see these kind of dark themes and that really hits you now. One of the things that's really fascinating to both Peaches and I about cult cinema and the way it connects to its audience, as opposed to maybe mainstream movies that we see and appreciate and we know are kind of part of the fabric of pop culture but aren't like those personal movies to us, is they tend to kind of grow with us as we grow up. And so looking at a movie like Matilda, which of course is about a formative experience and a movie that you have stayed with over these years as a a fan, how has your relationship to this movie changed, do you suppose? You start to see it for, you know, the less obvious surface level details and more for, I guess, the not so hidden, but hidden as a child meanings within the film. Like it, 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 resonates with me more today as you know an out queer person because you see Matilda as a child discovering that she has chosen family that she leans into her chosen family more than her real family and for a lot of queer people that is their existence as well so I see that theme throughout the entire film where she clearly is not the same as her family. Her family does not understand her. And she, through the entire film, through her her friends, the fellow students she has, Miss Honey, um, Little Connect, the librarian, she's finding people that are like-minded and finding people that are making her a better, more appreciated person. And that is something that as a child, you just don't fully comprehend. You know, you, you get like the slight message of that, but you don't see the depths of it. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, it was really lovely um, in our conversation with Mara. Uh, we got to talk about that a little bit, but but also because Mara is openly queer now, it takes on this wonderful extra layer, you know, where there's this extra identity. Now, I don't know if we can look at Matilda or young Mara Wilson and go, that's a dyke. Um, but, you know... <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> but that's exactly what I do. <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean it, it's just that thing where it's so lovely to know she's one of us, right? Like yeah. and and that the story is this great allegory for what we experience as queer people, you know. I mean if we're lucky, if we're really lucky, uh we had supportive families, but it doesn't mean that we don't identify with what it feels like to have your community not support you or your 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 school people or your church or, you know, whatever. Like, uh, very few queer people escape that feeling, unfortunately. Um, So I love that layer of, like, well, Mara herself was going to go through, you know, a Matilda experience. And then you layer on top of it being a young child star. I mean, that's a whole nother bag of worms. So I just think this is such a great, and you know, 
when thinking about, you know, Harry Potter, I'm really, really grateful that Daniel Radcliffe has turned out to be you know, so wonderful, but he's not queer. And then, of course, we have, you know, the the, the terrible disappointment of, the, you know, the author. She who shall not be named. Yes, <laughs> she, yes. <laughs> That's how we refer to her now, you know. Um, <laughs> she who shall but not be named being such a disappointment, so devastatingly so. So I think, you know, Matilda is one of those great examples. And, and also, we, we talked a lot about Danny DeVito and how wonderful mm-hmm. Danny and Rhea are offset. So, Connor, if you were ever wondering... Um, we can we can vouch for the fact that Mara has certified Danny DeVito is wonderful. So it, it, that's oh. like, like such a nice thing to know about all of them. Definitely, yeah, that it still holds true. Because I know I feel like the older we get, the more you are starting to have this conversation of separating the art from the artist. Because we found out a lot of artists are not as great as we think they are. But also, who's surprised? I mean, yeah, <laughs> all right, like through through major trauma comes beautiful art. So yeah, again, who's surprised that some people who are absolutely going through it are making beautiful art that resonates? But yeah, that is that is such a lovely thing to know that Danny DeVito is is a great person. Yeah. Because he's fantastic. You had mentioned kind of the draw to the darkness and how you reconciled that as an adult. But of course, it's something that we're drawn to as children. And, uh, you know, when we were planning for this episode, you also shared uh, that some of your other favorite cult films are Jennifer's Body and Heather's and and Hocus Pocus, which uh, Hocus Pocus kind of plays more to a family element like Matilda. But all of these movies kind of share a thread of darkness. And so I'm kind of curious... One, for you as artist, how what's the draw there? And because we've already made the queer connection, because these are all also stories about otherness, do you think that's impactful for your own work? Most definitely. I mean, yeah, it, it is funny that they all have that similar theme, but I've always been, as just a, a person who enjoys film and enjoys art, someone who is attracted to the, the dark side of it or the deeper side to it. And like I said earlier, usually that comes through some sort of traumatic element to it. So yeah, something like Jennifer's body, she clearly is made an other before and after her transformation. She considers herself an other as like the popular girl. And then when she becomes the demon girl, she also considers herself an other. Uh, and, you know, to a certain extent, I I think a lot of people could see themselves as that too. I think a lot of people want to see themselves as a little bit different than everybody else or someone special and unique. So when creating I'm always trying to find that element that I want to bring to my art, you know, what makes it individual to me and something that someone else too can learn something from or even feel highlighted within. Yeah, that makes sense. And the other thing about your choices, which I think Michael and I um, agree with you, we love all those movies, that, uh, that I think is worth noting that we as queer cult movie fans, I think men and women both really lean into female-centered stories. Just to note, Heathers is uh, one of my nostalgia films. So I love that you, young Connor, um, are familiar <laughs> with, with um, that movie because so much so that my yearbook quote was from the movie Heathers when I was in high Iconic. school. Iconic. <laughs> Iconic. <laughs> you know, I walked around calling all the bitches in school Heather. You know, I'd be like, move Heather. I was a bitch. Like, you know what I mean? I was a goth, angry, you know, bitch. So You went to Catholic <laughs> school though. So what yearbook quote were you able to get away with in Catholic school from the movie My Heathers? quote was, please God, let me dream of a world without Heathers, a world where I am free. 
that was my yearbook quote, and everyone knew exactly who I was talking about. And, you know, I called the jocks Heathers. I called them all Heathers. Um, you know, and I, and I was kind of leader of the goths, right? So, you know, I got everyone to call them Heathers. You know, if you, were, if you were a freak, if you were an outsider, if you weren't popular, you were basically not a Heather. <laughs> and everyone else, they were Heathers. To this day, I'm an abomination, you know, for my Catholic high school because of what, what I've ended up. Yeah. Are you, you too, Connor? Okay, good. Oh, yeah. You, you qualify? Yeah. <laughs> good. I just wonder, like, also, like how these these movies that you love and, and things like Matilda, what do you make of the fact that we as queer artists, as queer male artists, tend to identify more with women's stories? Again, it's something I've never fully pointed out to that some of my favorite films do have female-centered protagonists. So I am like really curious to dive into that. But I do think in general, growing up also going to a Catholic school, growing up also in like a very small conservative town, I was drawn again to like the grittiness, the taboo, the dangerous side when I would log onto my computer and watch a movie. It's, I was completely drawn to anything that I wasn't supposed to be watching in a way. I guess in a weird way, even, you know, growing up in the 90s, that reflects a female protagonist. That re- reflects like a badass woman, a girl boss, if you will. Yeah, I will. Gatekeep, gatekeep and gaslight. <laughs> <laughs> in a way that it was like, oh, this is so air quotes around it, wrong, that it is so right to me to finally see the thing that I don't see in reality a lot of times depicted on film. And I think that that might have been why I was drawn to it as a queer person as well. It's like, I don't see myself, but I relate to women and I'm seeing a woman in film be the star, be the badass. I think that totally tracks, right? Because you're talking about an era where queer representation in film outright was few and far between, if at all. And We've talked about this specifically with relation to horror movies and the concept of the final girl. I know so many queer identified men who love Sidney Prescott from Scream. They love Laurie from Halloween. And they're more invested in those characters than Ghostface or Michael Myers because I think we're looking at someone who in their own way is other and their otherness helps them survive this terrible circumstance. And so we... As, as LGBTQIA people are kind of making them our avatar because we don't have other representation. And luckily, as you said, this is good girl boss representation. Definitely. I know, yeah. There are a lot of nostalgic films are riddled with stereotypes and riddled with problematic behavior. But at the same time, a lot of the ones that withstand, a lot of the ones that are called classics were a step ahead because they were written with the mindset of feminism. Absolutely. And the nice thing about rewatching Matilda is like it doesn't have that sort of, um, uh, for its era, that sort of cringe quality that, you know, I think we're, we're having to sort of wrap our head around like, how do we, how do we, you know, continue to enjoy this thing? Or maybe we don't, you know, like there's some movies, you know, that, that I rewatch and I'm like, ugh. Yeah, I forgot about how fucked up that is. And especially being a privileged, you know, white young person, you know, I may not have noticed as much or given it as much thought and hopefully being a little more, you know, um, aware. Now I can kind of watch these things and, you know, I'll never forget having a Chinese roommate in college, Dan, who I just adored. And I think this is a good example of this where I was in college, Dan was my roommate. There were four of us. We're all queer. Dan's parents moved to this country 
country from China. They didn't speak English. Like Dan, you know, was first generation in Pennsylvania. And I was trying to get us all to go see 16 Candles. <laughs> the reason it resonates for me so much is because of how humiliated I was when I realized that Dan said to me, I hate that movie. I'm not going. And I was like, you're crazy. 16 Candles. It's a classic. Like, how could anyone hate 16 Candles? And then I went to see it, you know? And I was like, oh. I felt like I was beaten over the head. And sometimes it takes, well, it's like Harvey Milk says, you gotta come out. You gotta know people. You have to have a diverse section of friends to be more evolved, you know? And through Dan's eyes, I was able to like hate 16 Candles as well. <laughs> you know, and I don't think I've ever really embraced it since then. I mean, there are things I love about it. I love Molly Ringwald. I love Joan Cusack. There's some great stuff in that movie, but Ugh, you know, it, it really ruined it for me, and and rightfully so. You know, that was a very painful thing. So it really is nice when we love a movie like Matilda, especially as an exhibitor, as someone who celebrates cult movies, to feel like, okay, I can screen this, and I don't have to cover my eyes, you know, during this one part. Like, I fucking hate that rape scene in Showgirls, because it's like the energy in the room just just is completely deflated, you know, and it's almost like all of us are agreeing to overlook this hideous, violent part of the film. The whole movie's misogynistic and problematic, kind of in this gleeful way that you, you can't take seriously, right? But that scene is so brutal and so awful that, you know, that's where you really realize the filmmakers, Joe Esterhaus and Paul Verhoeven, they weren't in on the joke. They took it seriously because they put that fucking rape scene in the movie. And what's lovely about Danny DeVito, I think is if you look at all of his films, he was obviously progressive. He obviously understood what it meant to be different or an outsider. And Mara talks about that and kind of basically verifies that, yes, that's that's exactly who he is. So it's, it's lovely to know that. Now, Connor, I would like to know, because you are so accomplished, your success, so much of it has to do with social media and building an audience, building your own cult, you know, yourself kind of outside of the system. And I'm so in love with this because I've worked underground where what I consider to be underground, which is really outside of the system, right? Where where we're working outside of the, you know, of the Hollywood studio system or the media system. And, and so I really look at these social media success stories and, and give you a lot of credit because you did that, you know? How's that been, building your own sort of cult, your own audience? And then tell us a little bit about the new book. Again, it's something that you don't necessarily realize you're trying to do at the time, mm -hmm. but in hindsight, YouTube, um, MySpace, internet forums, blogs, what have you, all of it w was people in real life who felt like an other coming to the internet to find a community. And that necessarily at the time, that necessarily wasn't exactly what I was trying to do. But in hindsight, it was clearly what I was trying to do. I wanted to be heard. I wanted to be seen. I didn't want to necessarily be famous, but I wanted to like form a real connection with someone, something like I hadn't been forming in my, in my real life. So to, to have successfully done that by accident in a way is you know one of the, the greatest triumphs of my career is having a community and having a voice within the community and also having the respect of the community and people genuinely looking towards me for for guidance or for answers or you know post coming out as somewhat of you know a trailblazer within that community is just like an absolute honor and I um you know at the time would have never imagined that this is where I would be or I, I like to I often like, not daydream, I guess it's more of a nightmare. Think back to like what I would have been if I never did 
start creating online and I never did get that courage to do exactly what I wanted to do. It's like, where would I be? What would I be doing? Uh, and it's, it is pretty frightening at the, to really, really think about it. I do love the equivalency, though, of YouTube of a certain era being akin to cult cinema because of exactly what you just said. Because I think, you know, Peaches and I are both filmmakers, and we know that you can't really make a cult film. Cult films are sort of born of the audience that embraces them. If you intentionally set out to make something in that way, the audience reads it as inauthentic. And when you look at that era of YouTube that you were part of... Um, it's like you said, a lot of people were just logging on wanting to be heard. The idea of an MCN or like, you know, all of these things were not really there yet. And so now we see this whole new generation of people who want to be YouTube famous, a monkey's paw wish, I'm sure, not really realizing that that's not how it works. It's also interesting to see sort of the freaks that used to be online and now it seems like online is populated by the popular kids in a way where you know like the new rise of social media fame or social media personalities in a way doesn't feel like an other it feels like everybody else so it's it's a strange 360 to kind of get to what I guess modern cinema is you know usually it's not an other who is cast as the leading role right it's the popular kid in high school a lot of the times nowadays. So you actually got to be, in some ways, Matilda for somebody else just by being out and visible. Yeah, I mean, in a way, for sure. I, I think I, uh, through, through my growth online and through my vulnerability, I was able to show people just like Matilda that although parts of your life can feel terrible, you still can make them something wonderful as long as you have the will and the wish to do so. Yeah. yeah, that's so great. And I love what you say about um, where we're at with the social media stuff now, because I do think in general, there's a bit of a distaste in my mouth for the current state of things across the board. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, God, that I, I just watched that whistleblower interview with uh, the, the woman who, you know, is outing Facebook. And it's like, oh, wow, it's so much worse than we ever realized. Like, this is so much darker and so much more damaging. I mean, I can't even believe that part of what's been revealed is that Zuckerberg rallies a chant, fist bumps, and yells, company over country. Like, we didn't know he was a supervillain. Come on. We, but, yeah. but that's like Trump-level fucking comic book terrifying oh my God, things are so dark. And and I love what you're saying, which is like the original people that made this medium so successful were the outsiders. And yeah. isn't that always the way? If you look at cult movies and you look at the popularity of cult movies, it's some visionary freak who came along and made something called the Rocky Horror Picture Show when no one else would do it that lit this explosion or John Waters and Divine or, yeah. you know, whatever, these visionary weirdos who then decades later, you know, as drag is being super popularized and mainstreamed, and it's like, yeah, but where did it start? It started with trailblazers who were brave and had a vision and didn't mind risking, you know, or were obviously very vulnerable. And I think those early social media stars are very similar. You know, yeah. they put it all out there and then made it safe and comfortable for people to come in, monetize it, kind of ruin it, 
I mean, it's the same thing with gentrification. Queers go into, you know, a neighborhood that's maybe empty and then they open cafes and create restaurants and then, you know, rich people come in and, you know, it, it, it's all the same, right? I it's, mean, it's all, all marginalized people. Really. I mean, like, them, literally, yeah. that's what Nia DaCosta's Candyman is all about. It's yes. like, okay, people of color come in and make a neighborhood great and then they get priced out by the evil overlords, you know, so... Yeah. Um, but, you know, what's really amazing, uh, Connor, is through this discussion and, and you know, the, the connection between the cult of cinema and the cult of the Internet and how you, as Matilda, in of yourself for a generation, um, you keep evolving with your work. Like, you, you didn't just stay in this one place. And, you know, we talked about the lifestyle brand. We talked about your work in music. And uh, as, as Peaches mentioned, you've got the book. And, and tell us about this new book that's coming out. I found that as much as I love online creation and I love short form, long form is a little bit more gratifying. Uh, kind of marinating within the process of writing a book takes much longer than creating, you know, a short form YouTube video that has like a quick little blip of a lifespan. I like the idea that you know, my book is in a way permanent. In a way, it's around forever versus a YouTube video may kind of fade into the shadows. So this, uh, this third one is a collection of poetry, personal essays, and photography, film photography over the past five years of my life or so. And it depicts, you know, different, the different rolling hills of one can face in their 20s, essentially. You know, the identity crisis you face, uh, the struggles with being a queer person, mental health battles, you know, you name it. I kind of reflect on it and tell you not necessarily how I got through it because I don't want it to be too preachy or too self-helpy because I know everyone goes through an individual situation. But it, it, it does depict where I am with it and where I was with it at a different time. And I think it's, you know... I feel like a lot of us are going through a little bit of an identity crisis over the past couple of years, and I think it unintentionally depicts that very well. That's great. Well, I, I super look forward to checking it out. I have a very important question to ask you before we wrap things up. This is the big one. Obviously, Jinx's forcing me to watch Matilda was because she had ulterior motives, and it worked, you know, where I, immediately I started thinking about, okay, what would the drag parody show of Matilda look like? And then, and I was living at the time with Trixie Mattel because Trixie and I were roommates in Provincetown when I watched that film. We were all working there together. So I went home to say to, say to Trixie, okay, here it is. I want you to play Matilda, Trixie, only because... I want to call the show Matelda. Hey, all right, go yeah. work. Okay, work. Trixie's Matelda. I love torturing Trixie by putting her in something other than a blonde wig. So she'd have to wear some like tiny little hideous brunette child's wig. And Jinx wants to play the Rhea Perlman character. A true drag character, to be honest. I think it's funny because what Jinx always wants is to play the, the dynamic secondary character. Then as we move into it and she sees Trixie getting ready, Jinx will then say, well, maybe I should play Matilda. I, I'm thinking maybe, I, you know, this is just a little insight into what happens in my life. And then, of course, I want to play Trunchbull. I mean, hello, you know. So, Connor, who would you play? Oh, my gosh. Can I not pick any of the characters that have been you chosen? Can. You can, yeah. If we have to pick one that's left, I would absolutely, yeah. Miss, Miss Honey would be just 
I feel like I fit agree. my online Mr. Rogers persona. To a <laughs> I just extent. want you to know that's what I would cast you as. Okay, but it would be also very fun to be Matilda's mother. I cannot yeah. lie. Yeah. Just my my feet up, painting my toes, hair in curling irons, drinking. I I was rewatching a clip before this. She was drinking a Bud Light with a straw. Like, ma'am, came to work. <laughs> yes, I mean, amazing. Michael, who would you be? Oh, I mean, just in sheer reverence to the cult cinema gods, I would want to play Paul Rubin's part, like as the ah. as as the cop across the street. Plus, you know, like when I I thought you were going to say the chocolate cake kid. You Bruce, oh my god, Bruce, that, Bruce. can we talk about how that movie gave us like one of the kills from Seven for children? It's like I, I can't like that to me is yeah. one of those horrifying scenes in cinema history. Like I was telling Mara, like I don't want to eat cake ever again. Just watching it, and yet I still kind of wanted to try the cake. I, it was traumatic, but I was like, but what does that cake taste like? <laughs> I'm with Connor. I I actually you know. Uh, it reminded me a lot of a of another nostalgia film for my generation called Stand by Me. And so if you oh. if you've seen yeah, Stand by Me, that was on my list. Okay, yeah. so there's this great pie eating scene, you know, that might be neck and neck with the cake eating, you know, right. Um, but both really great moments. Well, Matilda doesn't commit to a, like a full-on Roman candle vomit sesh after. <laughs> Very reminiscent of Rooney Mara in a ghost story eating the pie on the floor for 10 minutes. If you haven't seen, if you know, you know. I, and if you don't, I feel sorry for you. I, I do. I do know it. And I love Rooney Mara. And okay, last, last very reminiscent moment. Also... Veronica Cartwright and the Witches of Eastwick. If you you know she 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 doesn't eat necessarily the cherries in the same way, but she vomits them up um, in a way that's just oh, it's also fabulous. Quite Maybe I'm into splashing. I'm a splosher. Yeah, we're gonna have to unpack that later. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should do a, a whole episode on splashing. It's your podcast. Do what you will. I feel seen. I feel heard. <laughs> So, Connor, uh, for the new book, and I think by the time this this podcast comes out, you're out, you're going on tour, right, with the book. So I'll actually be done with the tour by the time this is out, but you can still get the book anywhere that you get books, Amazon, Walmart, Target, Barnes & Noble, at your local uh, indie bookstores. You can just go check it all out on connorfrantabooks.com. That's awesome. And how cool that you get to go on the road with this, especially after 18 years, 18 years, oh my God, like that was that was my own damage right there. 18 years. <laughs> Eight, after 18 months of being like locked up and, you know, we're excited to be getting back to shows. Maybe Matelda will be one of them. Uh, yeah. But so it must be nice to get back on the road, too. Oh, I'm so excited. It's going to be a thrill just to see anybody and and be around people and to be, again, like celebrating something I've worked so hard on. So I'm just very excited. Well, big congratulations to you. And we cannot thank, thank you. you enough for coming on and talking about one of your favorite films. You've been an awesome guest. Uh, and we hope to uh, either have you on stage with us or back on the podcast in the future. I would absolutely love that anytime. Thank you for having me. And that was our interviewing with the amazing Connor Franta. You know, Peaches, one thing that I really enjoyed about talking to Connor, in addition to all of his insight about this movie and how formative it was for him, uh, was when we kind of discovered the equivalency between the cult of YouTube and the cult of movies and how it's an organic process. That was really fascinating to me because it speaks to the nature of how cult is everywhere. Yeah, and and you know how people um, who 
speak to a niche group are able to reach that group using, you know, new technology like social media and the internet. It is really interesting. And I'm like an old queen, right? So I would say that I'm not as familiar with how it's all done and and nor am I familiar with who's done it well. But I will say this, that it's been really wonderful for me to receive email and correspondence from young people who are looking for, you know, a drag queen that's into cult movies through social media. And I love that people are discovering our world because they can find me on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. And I've actually ended up, you know, kind of coaching people or, you know, offering advice or encouraging them to do a midnight movie series. You know, I I actually would love it if there was a whole army of drag queens out there doing what we did, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's that's one thing I just love about social media. You know, we say it in some way, shape, or form in every episode that you can't have a cult movie without the cult that makes it up. And we talk about how that really just means the community that rallies around these things. And when we did Phantom of the Paradise, one of the conversations we had with Phil Nobile Jr. of Fangoria was sort of the shelf life of a cult. The idea that at some point these cults will fade away. But what's been cool about doing Midnight Mass as a podcast is seeing these movies that maybe did have a shelf life get suddenly renewed because new people are discovering them. Every week I'm seeing tweets and messages and Instagram DMs from people that will say, I just watched Blood Diner for the first time because I heard it on your show, or I checked out Vegas in Space, or I am going to you know, buy the Scream Factory release of Phantom of the Paradise because this sounds cool. And that's how we found these movies in a different way, because maybe John Waters wrote about them in shock value, or we yeah. discovered them on the uh, the video store shelves. So to to feel like we're helping these movies that we love continue in their cult trajectory is is really humbling, I think. That's true. The Psychotronic Movie Guide was my Bible. <laughs> <laughs> now you can you can access uh, a virtual Psychotronic Movie Guide any day of the week. Um, but yes, it, it just it gives better access to all of this information. And certainly things like YouTube, you know, if you share a clip, let's say, from something like, I don't know, The Baby or Chatterbox or something that's really obscure or The Apple, you know, and then people who are in the know start... Um, um, you know, commenting about it, and and it, it creates sort of a fervor. Well, for everyone who's not in the know, once you've watched that incredible clip, of course you're going to go find out if you're if you're at all interesting. You're going to go find out, you know, anything you can about the movie. So it it is giving this sort of whole new opportunity to some of these films. Um, to have an even bigger audience, which is great. And lest, listeners, you think that this is going far afield from today's subject of Matilda, it really comes back to the idea of finding your people. Matilda's primary message is that she did not feel like she fit in until she found Miss Honey, until she found her friends at school. And together, they built the lives that they wanted to make. And through cult films we get to do the same. And luckily, one of those cult films is Matilda. 
full circle. That was a good full circle moment. And I'm going to take it even more full circle uh, because and I'm going to talk like Ben Delacrum <laughs> um, and say that the internet um, is a, also a place where you can buy merchandise. And for the first time ever on the newly revamped peacheschrist.com, visit it today, you can buy actual t-shirts for the Midnight Mass podcast and posters of Michael and I. So, you know, and other shit. Um, so, so please, 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 uh, we've invested a lot of time and energy and money into revamping this website. It was long overdue. Please visit peacheschrist.com and consider supporting us by buying a coffee mug or something of the sort. Yes. Um, yeah, and um, there was something else I was going to say. Oh, I know, Michael, before we sign off, I was thinking about the fact that you brought up a movie and now I can't get it out of my head where I was like, huh, maybe I should ask Michael for a list of those movies because I am realizing I still don't know so many of these nostalgia cult films and you brought up Casper, which I had no idea um, is one of those. And then I was thinking, well, what are these other movies that people have mentioned to me over the years that maybe I haven't seen? One, one is Practical Magic. I have not seen, I don't think I've seen Practical Magic. Is that, I that's one I should watch? love Practical Magic. <laughs> it, is, it is one of my all-time faves. I have a theatrical poster of it hanging in my really? bathroom. I am, a, I am a Practical Magic fan, super fan. Love that movie. Um, to the point where I was helping produce an event that they had an American Werewolf in London reunion with John Landis, Griffin Dunn, and, oh, wow. and David Naughton. And of course, you know, they're there to talk about this movie. And I grabbed Griffin Dunn, who directed Practical Magic, and I was like, I need you to understand that I love this movie. And, <laughs> and he was very sweet about it. Super nice. Uh, and he loved making it. So of course, he was happy to hear that. But Okay, uh, so here's the deal. Yeah. We want you fans to let us know. We, we always ask this, but let us know about, especially Old Lady Peaches, what are these cult movies that you have watched repeatedly growing up? Um, especially these films from the 90s and 2000s that may have that may have slipped by me because, you know, I was so cult. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I know, I have a feeling I'm going to enjoy Practical Magic, and now I'm really interested in seeing Casper. That's another one I would never have thought to watch. And I just find the whole thing very fascinating. And that's how Matilda was brought into my life, and I'm so glad that, you know, Jinx and... Trixie and 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 those um, younger queens introduced me to it, and I'm so glad that Michael and I, you know, now get to do um, a show where we get to celebrate it with Matilda herself. It was a really fun and satisfying episode. Uh, and if you're you're if you're satisfied the way we are, indeed like I am, Michael. Yes, fully satisfied. One hundred percent satisfaction. This podcast is the equivalent of eating a Snickers bar. It's a, um, the equivalent of eating a whole <laughs> chocolate cake. <laughs> there, there you go. There you go. Uh, if you if you are gorging on chocolate cake in the Midnight Mass podcast, well, it's obvious you're all children of the popcorn now. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, 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 
Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production. <laughs>